This is a class about theology. Uh, R.C. Sproul, pretty, pretty famous guy, he has a relatively new book called Everyone's a Theologian. And so I titled this class Everyday Theology. That's a pretty, that's a pretty common word today in theological circles, but I did that for a reason, and, and we'll find that out a little bit later. Um, I have stickers printed for you that I'll pass out here in a second, and those say this, you know, like, I, as many of you know in classes, I like to give a little reminder of something that's, here, why don't you hold that up, man, that just warms my heart right there. You see this right here, Gail has one of my old stickers on her Bible from, <laughs> from mythology. Um, you know, I think it does help us, you know, you look at that and you say, oh yeah, that's a reminder of what I learned in this class. And so I'll have one. And it simply says, every day, everyone does theology. And that's, that's the truth. And we'll walk you through that today. And, and I think that's part of what R.C. Sproul is trying to communicate. In fact, Jen has them right there, my lovely bride. Um, I think he's trying to communicate to us that every day and every person does some sort of reflection on God. So we'll get into that a bit later. Now, this first class is going to be on, basically, how to do theology. Christian perspective. Certainly, we could do theology from a Buddhist perspective or a Hindu perspective or an American perspective, but we want to do it right from a Christian perspective. And really, more than just a Christian, a biblical perspective. And so, you know, there are a lot of paths we can take. In fact, many people who call themselves Christians have taken different paths. And so, you know, the question is, what is the right path and how do we even establish that? Because... To start something that is such an important task as theology, you better be sure that you're starting at the right point. And there, like, if you look at theologies, the prolegomena or first things oftentimes like are this big, right? That many pages in, in the bigger ones because it's that important. So we're going to spend one class on that. And he, he, in the first two chapters, he does that. I want to have a word about this before and speak about Romans. You know, I think this is one of the foundational passages on systematic theology. Romans 1 and 2 talks about the renewing of our minds, but it also connects it with what? What is that? Some of you surely have memorized that passage. I see you quoting it over there, so you did know it. <laughs> right? That I think that connects an important point for us before we even start in R.C. Sproul's work that theology is never about just learning. And I mean learning in the sense of knowing. Right, a Western concept of learning. It's never that way. The Bible, that's, honestly, that's utter nonsense from a biblical perspective. It connects renewing of the mind with a sacrificial life, with a life that is transformed, a living. It's really about a being, those things. I think it's about being the person that God wants you to be, an imitator of Christ. John 15 is an interesting passage, too. You know, he says, how do, you, how do you show me that you love me? What is, what is the teaching there? Yeah, obedience. So we can know a lot of things, but knowledge is different than obedience. And so there's, there's always in Scripture this connection of knowledge with obedience or living out. And so I, I really want to encourage us that everything we learn, many, most of us in this room are seasoned Christians. I don't, I don't see a single new believer I think my son is not a believer yet, <laughs> but right. I don't see a single new believer. So these things, 
will hopefully refresh us and giving in our life, giving us a new perspective. You know, Robert and I were talking before class about a new perspective on things. And so I hope that this class does that, a refreshing, um, a production of life change. You know, if we ever stop changing to be more like Christ, then we're in, we ought to, we ought to reflect on why we're not changing to become more like Christ. Um, so to the book. Why does, why does he say everyone's a theologian? Well, I think it's because we all have thoughts and ideas about God. Right? Even like the basic apologetics classes teach us, or books, will te- a Google search will teach you that, right? I mean, you don't need, like, we all, an atheist, what is their thought about God? Yeah, there is no God, right? So from the lowest level to the highest level. But I, I want to emphasize in this class that it's not that just we all have thoughts and ideas about God, but we all live in light of those things. Because what we believe is reflected in our actions. And so theology is really a doing thing. You know, the Western mind has divorced doing from learning. And I hope, as part of God's grace in this class, to reconnect some of those. And we're going to look at some of the things Sproul has to say, specifically with regard to that. You know, in that point, think about it this way. You know, coming to class tonight, like your trek out into the wilderness of rain in the DFW Metroplex, reflects something about what you believe, doesn't it? And I'm not making a good or a bad judgment call. I'm saying that you believe that this is valuable. And your actions match that. Those who are home tonight, they believe what they're doing is the right thing and it's valuable to them. And I'm not saying right or wrong. Maybe the right thing for someone tonight is to watch a football game. I I don't know, you know. But certainly, if we think about it that way, our actions reflect something about what we believe. Also, I, I think that, you know, at work we might think this way. Here's a good example. I know a brother here who recently made a huge mistake on a spreadsheet at work. And he's had some trouble at work recently. And he was faced with a decision. He knows, like, this is a guy who, man, one of the soundest theologians I know, like, he made a task. He's well-read. And he struggled with that decision, right? I'm not putting him down or lifting him up. I'm saying, like, his, his choice in that will reflect something he believes, you know? Does he believe, if he was to tell a lie, does he believe that that is better for him? I think that's the truth. If he was to tell the truth, I think that would reflect something about what he believes. And I think we can all think about situations in our life. You know, I know in my life, do I come home from a long day of driving a truck, sit down with my son and, and do that, or do I want to take a long nap on the couch? <laughs> you know, I'm not putting a, a righteousness value on that. I'm saying that reflects something about what I believe. And so that's, that's part, you know, partially at least, one of the things that we ought to think about in this book. And I think he, he makes that point as well in those first two chapters. Now, just to reemphasize that before we move into those chapters, discipleship in the, in the Christian walk are never an emptying of knowledge from one person to another. Like that's, not the, that's not the way Scripture sees it. You know, Jim taught a class that we were only able to go to once, but some really valuable information about one anothering. Right? And at the heart of that principle, I think, is the idea that it is life on life, not just knowledge emptying. Right? So, main point one. 
existentialism. And that's a bit that's a big word. Can anyone without just reading these, you know, I mean those, those are good clues, but anyone with that line of thinking existentialism. Existence teaching on being. Yeah, these are some pretty famous people. I don't want to go into them, but these are their statements. Man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. And everything has been figured out except how to live. Interesting. Those are some pretty core statements from books from these people on this topic. Why, why does he bring that up in his book and why do we need to dwell on this for a minute? Well, because it has influenced our culture. What is this? Yeah, okay. So, so y'all who have seen this movie, describe a little bit of what the movie's like. So for those of you who haven't seen it, they can they can get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got a choice between a pill. It's a crazy movie. <laughs> it it does it does. So they got a pill, right? And they can eat it, and they see a whole different reality when they eat it. What else about maybe like Paul or Jen or someone who's seen it? What else about this guy here? His name is Neo in the movie. What can he do? You don't remember? <laughs> I didn't understand it. I was <laughs> <laughs> so you saw it, but you didn't understand it? Okay, Paul, you're my last hope. Okay, okay. I won't throw you under the bus. Yeah, Ruben. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Can, what, what's like, what is his special ability with the special effects? Do you remember that? Yeah, he's got powers. He can shape his world. He can change how he experiences the world. And ultimately, really, that's what the pill is about, like a change in existence, right? This movie is probably one of the most influenced by existential thinking. It's man-centered, not God-centered. It's about feeling, about experience. The, one of the messages of the movie is, do I know my experiences are even real? Because maybe there's another existence out there that I don't know is real. And wow, if I take this pill, I'm going to wake up and it's going to be, right? It's one of the things that Robert said is you don't, there's no control over reality. There's no substance to it. One of the biggest things about this teaching, this influence on culture, is that it gives us uh, no, no starting point that we can be sure of. It says, well, you know, life is absurd. I see, I see one person out there who has a baby and it lives to 100. And I see another person and the baby dies. I can't make sense of that. I don't know why. And so it, sa- it says really there's no pattern to life that we can figure out. Now, Sproul's take on this and its influence on theology is, first of all, that it leads to pluralism and relativism. What's pluralism? Yep. That's... Yeah, there's, there's many ways to heaven, right? Because why, why would that lead from what we just talked about? Yeah. Yeah, maybe there are many ways. What about, and relativism is a little bit more like what we, someone just commented on, that there is no one true way, right? There's no one way to truth. Yeah, right in your own eyes. Yeah, that's right, Jeff. Now, he says in, his, in this book, in the first chapter, that theology does not escape from the pull of existentialism. Everything what, that we just talked about, he's saying that even evangelicals have gravitated toward, a more, toward viewing what the Bible says more that way. 
Okay? Then he says this comment. It has an overwhelmingly negative effect, or it has overwhelmingly negatively affected theology. Because many have forced theology into this framework. And he gives a statement there. Those of you who read it, it's like he says there was a Greek god and they cut off his legs. He would grab people and cut off their legs to fit them in a bed. So buying him a new bed, right? <laughs> okay, that's the example he gives. Pretty good. He said, we've done that with theology. We take a modern philosophy and try to stuff theology into it. Jim. So. Actually, that's a great question. Let me answer that. My take? <laughs> Uh, my second point on here, um, my analysis. Let me let me jump there and then go back. So I'll go back and add two things, but I think it's a classical approach that's lacking. So this is like what we're gonna. The basic format of this class is gonna be. I'm gonna say what he says, and most times I'll agree. Like I, I'll probably have nothing. Like man, he's amazing when it comes to like Christology or something, you know. But like here, I think Jim, you bring up a good point because. When we divorce our theology from culture and draw a line in the sand and say nothing good about what culture has to offer us at all, and I think we lose our impact, and I'll talk about this a little more, but I, I think he had a chance to tackle hermeneutics of humility. Um, what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, let me now, I think he misses, in other words, what I'm saying is he doesn't talk about it, and I think he had a chance to at least give one sentence about it. So what do I mean by hermeneutics of humility? Hermeneutics just means Bible interpretation. Let me go back. I think existentialism actually bring, existentialism brings out some important points about reality that we miss as modern Christians. Many in this room, I love you, but you're a little older, and you probably grew up in a modern age where reason is king and leaves out experience. I think one of the bonuses that we can get from culture is, certainly we don't... Experience, and we'll talk about this later, but experience doesn't, isn't a source of theology. But it does validate theology. God gives us each individual experiences that prove to us his word is right. Let me, let me give you an example. Can someone turn to Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 15? And then while someone's doing that, someone else go to Romans 8, 18 through 25. Now, those of you who are in my Ecclesiastes class, what is vanity supposed to be translated as probably? mist or vapor so i take that ecclesiastes is a good book it has something good to teach us about satisfaction in life what is solomon saying here to us about life is he saying it all makes sense in this side of heaven or there's problems yeah that's right barbara there are problems look the point, one of the points of Ecclesiastes is that if you're looking for a key to life to explain why your child died at three months old and someone else's didn't, you're never going to find it. You just got to trust God that that's in your good. And that's, I think, one of the things that existentialism does have to teach us. While the system as a whole, we can just throw it out and into the trash, yes. We never should do theology that way. But I think he misses this point. Because this didn't, look, people don't just make up systems of philosophy out of thin air. They see natural revelation, which can't lead us to God, and make conclusions that aren't right. But I think they have, at least there's some point in there. Okay, Romans 8, 18 to 25. So I just want to point out here that I think the biblical teaching on experience is clear. That it will not always make sense, this side of heaven. 
In fact, sometimes it will seem to teach us the opposite of what reality is. And that Jim kind of matches up really well with what you were teaching, at least you know from what I gathered. So it's just interesting that you know we. I think we have to you know at the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ when he was ascended to heaven, and then you know the church fathers. Who who knows who said this? Certainly someone I believe in order that I may understand. Anyone know who's who's famous for saying that? Okay, Augustine, who wrote City of God, among other things. He said this. Now, I think this is the biggest critique of modernism. I think this is the biggest problem with not only CBC, and I, I mean that graciously, but many of us evangelicals is that we think it's the other way around. We may not overtly say that, but we think it's the other way around. We think it's not, I believe in, we think it's, I understand so that I can believe. But that's not God's pattern in Scripture, (laughs) you know. We're going to look at some some pretty telling surveys here and some other things that demonstrate to us that Americans think this way. That it's, I understand so that I can believe. But I think we'll find out that that's not the way. And I wish, let me say this, Sproul is a greater man than I am. He's, He's probably written more than I ever will. But I wish he would have said something about this. Because my generation reads that first two chapters and says something is lacking. And so that's my biggest critique of everything I've read. And I've read a decent amount of it now. Is that if, if we throw existentialism out without noticing that there are something good about it, you know, that this yearning in our bodies, because we die, right? <laughs> like, that's not good. Terrible things happen. And if we say that we can explain all of those, then I think we're missing revelation in Scripture. So, hermeneutics of humility then, I think we need to come to the Bible with a certain, obviously, sense of humility, but with a sense of humility that says, my my experiences may not be fully explained, even by the best of biblical passages, and that I need to trust God in my life. And theology, how does that tie into theology? Well, if we think we can create a system of doctrines that will give us every answer to life, then I think we're saying, I understand so that I can believe. You know, I think it was, I may have this quote later, but I think it might even be Sproul. No, it was C.S. Lewis. And I, I write this down, I'll have this for you later. But he said, doctrine is not God. Now, it is out of his character and it's consistent, we'll see later. But it is not God. We don't, you know, the promise is of getting God, right? Getting Jesus Christ. John 17, verse 3. So, this is an interesting quote. Just as a balance. I think this is a good balance for us to think about when we approach systematic theology. Humility in us should not become humiliation of the text. So, so let me... why, why do I put this up here? You know, you have the two ex- expanses. I, I take everything in the Bible literally, with no, and, and I, I'm a KJV-only person. That's humiliation of the text. But also, on the other hand of things, I think we have those who say, well, it can mean whatever I think it means. <laughs> and that's humiliation of the text. So, you know, like many things in Scripture, I think we need to come to a center point here and say, look, I don't know everything, in fact, I will never know everything because we're not God. And so that's a good starting point for me. It was a good check on my reality. 
Now I have an exercise for you to do. I have here, and I'm going to, I'll turn on the lights so you can write and talk together. I'm going to give you like six, seven minutes here to read these. And then I have some questions for you um, that we'll discuss together. But the main one is, how does the second statement reflect existential influence? A me-centered absurdity in the world. I don't know what can be, so I can lead to having many things and experiences king. Okay, These are statements from Harvard at the beginning and now. This is Harvard Divinity School in 1636. I think that's the right number. 1636, when it was founded. And this is as of 2014. Now, this was an institution that preached the gospel. Maybe not what we would call all correct theology, but certainly you read some of the works that came out of there and the men that went there, and you say they they really love Jesus. So your task is in the next seven minutes to, to see how the second one reflects existential influence. Um, Okay, so our task was, we wanted to look at two statements of Harvard as to their mission. And so the Enlightenment, right, happened during this period. We have this influence of existentialism and culture during this period. I wanted to see if Sproul is right. Like, oughtn't we have an example of if Sproul is right that existentialism influenced theology? Okay, so... We'll just go for one or two things from each group that you saw in here. If we get to the end and you don't have anything new, just say something that has already been said. Okay? All right. So we'll start in the back left then with Ruben, Bellin, and Jennifer. What are, what are your thoughts? Can we, can we find at least one or two things in here? That's very good. That's a key there. Yeah. Okay? Anything else you all notice? Good. So you see, like, then, then I, let me sum that up. So your answers were that the last sentence about an investigation of truth says that it's not settled. And then you have weird wording to try to, like, avoid certainty, I might say. Isn't, that, isn't, it, isn't it, like, just a play? Like, I don't know. It's like a dance, like, trying to, I don't know. Well, I think I know, but, yeah, impartial. So that's a great one. Because can we give any value over one person's experience to another? according to existentialists. No. Of course not. Okay. So let's move here. Yeah. That's good. In fact, where's the starting point there then? Okay. One other thing or are we good? It's a good one. Yeah. That's right. That's right. A different valuing of something there. Yeah, that's a great observation. All right. Front right. Very good. There's another one. Like... An isolation. It's another experience in the academic community because we have a variety of experiences, don't we? Another difference in starting point. Okay? Front right here. What would you all see? So you're saying that we want to enrich them? So what would be the change there, um, the difference there between the two? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. That's right. So in other words... Like a totally, that's right, exactly, Joy. A total shift in paradigm, right? Like it's not, it's a totally different mission. Like if you were to put these as the same institution, you'd like boggle your mind. And I know people change in 400 years, but yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yes. Uh-huh. That's another good one. Everyone's experience is valid. She said women. 
like you. Yeah, women. The big difference is we, we get uh, a definite um, gender qualification here. I think, again, that points to experience. Everyone has a different experience. All right, finally, back group here. Anything you got for me? New? So Jim is saying that there's no, no mention of God. Yeah, no mention of God at all in the right one. A relational God in the first one. Science and academics versus our, our faith-based pursuit. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Are you saying we can't get a good Christian education at Harvard? Wait, cut that out. No. <laughs> Joy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you have such a difference. I, I really like those two things that you and Jim said. Because you have a different, like what you're saying, just a different paradigm. Like it's like these people aren't even on the same wavelength, right? I, I wanted to say, you don't have God in the second one. You don't have the Bible in the second one, right? Like I don't even know. I, I mean, I guess. Yeah, there's, there's nothing, right? Like it's just like, I don't know. I think they've lost their moorings. Let me just say that. And I think this is a good example. Now, this is an extreme one, okay? Because it's been along for, around for so long, and we know it's shifted so much. But this is a great example of a shift of existentialism, how that influences things. So that should serve as a lesson for us without any further comment. Yes? It's ironic, because in existentialism, there is no purpose. <laughs> that's a great that's a great point you know it's almost ironic it's purpose what purpose okay you know that's that was good we got to pound it back here hallelujah let's close and say amen this i hope this was a helpful ex- yes stan sure it is it is it's not all bad the good would be in what did i say the good was in like what? What? What were the good points of it? It's what? In what? In what sense? Yes, but in what sense, Paul? Yeah, I think that's key. We don't understand all the purposes. There is a purpose. That's the big difference, right? For existentialists, there is no grand purpose, and that works itself out, Jim, into postmodernity. The the famous word there is incredulity toward meta narratives. <laughs> simply means I don't believe there's a grand plan in history at all. That's what, that's what existentialism leads to. Okay. Yes, Bellin. Yep, yep. You give him credit. I, I like that. Yeah. You, it, there's just, I mean, it's just all over the place. That's another good, you know, like after God. Like who did it? God. So, okay, we got to move on. Those are great. And you can find many more of these. The history of higher education in America is littered with the refuse of existentialism. I mean, it's just everywhere, right? Baylor is a great example, but I don't have time to go there. So, you can look that up on your own. And I, and I mean that. You look up Baylor and you, you listen to what they teach. We have a, a student here that I've been talking to that goes to Baylor now. And um, it's a sad narrative on the, the state of theology in America. Okay, so the main point one then, just to rehash, is existentialism has influenced theology. Y'all got that? Yes. Prove it to me. We just did. <laughs> you did. We just did. Let's say it together one time. Existentialism has influenced theology. You go now. Existentialism has influenced theology. Good, thank you. I don't mean to treat you like second graders. 
I love you. That's not the reason. It's to make it stick. Okay. The second main point of Sproul in his book is that assumptions must be had for systematic theology. He says there are three. Yes, technically, but actually what he's done is form a syllogism. A syllogism is simply a form of an argument that gives two premises and a conclusion that if the conclusion, that if the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. Systematic theology. It wouldn't fit on my PowerPoint, so, yeah, a little bit of abbreviation. So, Sproul says, number one, and I would agree, I hope, I hope we all agree here. <laughs> this is an easy, easy one. God has revealed himself in, in two ways, general and specific, in Psalm 19 and John 1. Psalm 19 is great because it's really both of them. First half is general, second half is specific. John 1 is Jesus Christ. So we have God's revelation. So basically, you should read this. If God has revealed himself, and, number two, if God's revelation is according to his person, which it is, and that just simply means consistent. In other words, does God say one thing and do another? Does God act one way and is another way? No, never. Consistency in action. So if these things are true, therefore, God's revelation in Scripture manifests who he really is. Now, I love this statement. And this is what you're asking. Who knows what a hobgoblin is? Does anyone know what a hobgoblin is? Yes. Yeah, a troublemaker. It's a mythical creature that steals stuff. It's just all full of trouble. You know, a pest. This is one of my favorite quotes from his entire book. It is said that consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Okay, so like this is a this is a common belief now that, in other words, if we don't think all experiences matter, right? But we're consistent with our with our thinking. If that were true, he says, we would have to say God has a small mind <laughs> because he is utterly consistent. Man, that is really good thinking. A really good quote. That's powerful and really speaks into our culture. Now, having said all of this, I want to blank this and bring your attention to our little exercise we did earlier. Now, I'm not going to give you seven minutes, but I want you as a group, so you've met each other now, you're comfortable with each other, okay, quickly, in collaborative fashion, decide what object I gave you. Go. You've got three minutes. Remember, I gave you the same object. Okay, time's up. What did I give you, anyone? A hard round ball. Styrofoam ball. I see yes and no. Styrofoam ball. Sponge ball. A hard plastic ball. Come on. I gave you the same object. I really did. It felt like a racquetball. Okay. Okay, so this was the object I gave you. And this was the object I gave you. Now, hold on. And this was the object I gave you. And this was the object I gave you. Okay? Okay. Now, did I lie to you? Same thing. Now, what, what does that actually mean? What, did I, what does that mean? They were all a ball. That's all, I, that's all I meant to communicate to you. It was all in your mind what you thought I meant. That, is not, that was not a lie. <laughs> it was in your hand. 
right? Okay. Okay. Okay, that, that's really good and wise. It's an experience of what it felt like. Because you know what? They're all balls. And they're all almost exactly the same size. They're made out of different things. Now, why, why did I do that? Because a key principle that existentialists miss, that modernists miss for doing theology is that you do not have to have comprehensive knowledge to have sufficient or useful information about life. And that is a major problem with our society now. You find one of those, I have to know everything about it to have usefulness. Or, right, or we say, well, my experience of that is different than yours, so there is no truth. My experience of the ball is that it's squishy and like a racquetball or, you know, or that it's, so, so we can't come to any agreement. I'm telling you that as a foundational principle for all of our all of our reading of Scripture, all of our doing theology is that we do not need to have... Think about it this way. If we knew everything, we would be God. Let's start there and work backwards. Then, clearly we can say we don't know everything. In fact, our perception of reality... This is a good thing about existentialism, Stan. Our perception of reality differs from others because God gives us unique experiences. And yet... Just like truth, there is similarity. It is not a lie to say that I gave you the same object. Now, if I had said, I gave you a wooden round ball, then I would have been lying. But I didn't say that. And oftentimes, that's a big problem, not only with theology, but it's a big problem with like textual criticism and issues in theology. You know, like we, here's the problem, we bring baggage to theology. And we don't, we don't take God at his word because we have other things that influence our thinking. And so this was a simple exercise. I mean, some of you figured it out pretty quickly. That's okay. You know, like, it, I think it teaches us a good lesson. And that, that's one of the things that I guess I, I, had, I wished, again, coming from my, my a little bit younger generation, that Sproul would have talked about a little bit. Because that's a big issue in society. You know, if you've ever talked to one of your friends about the gospel, one of the first questions that comes up is, well, I don't have enough proof for that. My answer to that is you don't need any more proof. <laughs> like, what you have is sufficient. What scripture comes to mind for y'all on sufficiency? Yep. Where's that? Second Timothy 3, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. We have what we need. And that's a principle that I think we really need to reflect on in our own lives. We never have, nor do we need complete knowledge to have sufficient knowledge. That, that, I would say that, that is a pretty, pretty solid, both reasoned and biblical answer to someone, just like Velen said right now, it's a good evangelistic tool. I really, and I think that's one of the great answers we can give to postmodern objections to the Christian faith. The other one is a life lived in godliness. The, it's the life and theology, right? It's the mix. But that's a great, that was a great answer, Valen. Thanks for sharing. Robert? Before the class, yep, amen. Yeah, so Robert is just saying, like, even the top of their, their philosophers in, in the Greek society said, you know, what was it again, Robert, exactly? I only, know that I, know I only know that I know nothing. Yeah, and that's the grace of God right there, in some sense, showing him that. God is a provider, right? I mean,
And it's not just food, right? You're saying it's for everything. It's for it's for any sense of the world. Every breath we take. That's right. I think a good example for you to communicate this principle. So one of my desires in teaching is, and I know we're a little behind, so bear with me, but one of my desires in teaching is to make what I teach communicable. communicable. So if you, if you were to rehash this to someone, a good way to communicate this would be, hey, we're going to McDonald's, right? And for me, I know there's a McDonald's on First Avenue and C Avenue in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, okay? And I tell you that, and I say, meet me there. It's a 14-hour drive for you. You punch it in the GPS, and you arrive there, and you don't see a McDonald's sign. Like you don't see anything at all, so you drive around for a little while. You're like, wow, this, this Philip guy's an idiot. Right? He didn't even know his hometown. Okay. Well, you pull in, and it's a Chevron gas station. And on a quarter of the back of it, there's some signage. And it says McDonald's. Now, what I have given you is sufficient information to get you to a McDonald's, though I certainly could have given you more, but it got you there. You just had to believe me that there was a McDonald's there, right? You can you think about that. Like someone tells you something in life and you don't find it right away and you're like, what is wrong with this person? But then you realize, oh, I didn't quite listen to what they were saying, right? Or I didn't have the faith in that person, what they were saying. Now, that's a, that's a big leap to God and revelation in Scripture. But I think it's an analogy that stands up. So that's a way we might be able to communicate that to others. Because you really can get to that McDonald's. You just have to trust what I said, that there is one there. So that's one good example. So, finally, and we'll run through this relatively quickly. There are some important things he says about the frame of systematic theology. And I'm, I'm going to give you... Um, this survey, and I, actually what I'm going to do is let you take take this home. I, but And I'll, gi- I'll give you a link. I'll have you sign and give your email, but I'll give this to you all um, as a group, and maybe you can decide how and next time come back in the same group or whatever. But this is a survey <clears throat> as we end class. I want you to think about um, over the break, because we won't meet again for three weeks because I'm gone doing other things since break. But think about the sources of theology. And as you read, I'll give you some homework. Think about what the sources of theology are and then think about where these people get their theology. And this is a pretty telling survey. This is a Ligonier survey, I think that's how you say it, of 3,000 Christians that they ask them many questions about the faith. Self-identified Christians. So I'm going to share one with each group here. Self-identified Christians. And these are people who were picked for sample size. So they say there's about a 1.8% error chance here. So I'll share this. So you can read through that. We just don't have time to go through tonight because it was really good interactive class and you had great things to say. Um, so just make a note on that or in your mind. What are the sources of theology? How do I get theology? 